You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. I have spoken with so many members of our Her Money community lately on the topic of careers and our working lives. We know that the majority of us, 55%, have either been looking for or have found another position this year, according to the folks at Bankrate. The number of people changing jobs in all industries has been so high the phenomenon was even given a name, you've probably heard it, the great resignation. Women are seeking everything from pay raises and title changes to a hybrid or completely remote work environment. And women of color are increasingly seeking something even more meaningful. They're on a quest for equality in the workplace, which they have all too often been denied. According to a recent report on the state of Black women in corporate America, 49% of Black women feel that their race or ethnicity will make it harder for them to get a raise, a promotion, or a chance to get ahead. Black women face trauma in the workplace that ranges from blatant racism to microaggressions, to being overlooked for the best assignments or the best projects. Now, the good news is that we are talking about all of this. We are listening, we are learning, and we can all take intentional, specific steps toward a better, more equitable future, no matter where we work. To talk through all of this with us today is Minda Hartz. You all know her. She has been here with us before. We are thrilled that she's back. Minda is the CEO of the career development platform for women of color, The Memo. She is the author of the book by the same name, which is what we talked about the last time that she was here. And she's got a new book. It just came out last month. It is called Right Within, How to Heal from Racial Trauma in the Workplace. Minda, welcome and congrats on the new book. Thank you, Jean. I appreciate how you show up for these conversations and how you have been supportive of my journey. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And I always learn something when you're here. So thank you for coming back. I know that you talked to more than 200 women of color 
in order to write this book. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And many of them felt that racism had actually killed the careers they originally envisioned for themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about that in general, but also about some of the personal stories that are in that fact? Yes, it was very heartbreaking to hear 200 stories about dreams deferred. If any of us think about certain times in our career, we might have a moment where we're like, man, that didn't work out the way we planned it, but often experience our dreams deferred by careers, but sometimes we do. But in this case, women of color were telling me their stories about how they just weren't supported in the workplace. They weren't thought of for those stretch assignments, right? When micro or macroaggressions were present, people would dismiss them because that wasn't their experience, but it was the woman of colors. And so many of them decided that for their mental health, that they just needed to leave the workplace. Many started their own companies because they can no longer find that equality, that equity that you talked about at the top of the show. And then others are suffering while they're still there, right? But they decided they needed to just do something else, but still make an income and pay their bills. And so It was really heartbreaking to hear them talk about how they worked so hard. You know, they went to college, Jean. They were the first in their families to graduate from college, to enter into corporate America. And they were so excited and thought that a meritocracy was available to them. And quickly they found that they were the only and they didn't have any support. And so I heard countless stories from women who were 70, 50, 21, 25, you know, 36. And they all had very similar stories to tell about their dreams deferred. And it really led me to want to tell their stories so that we could understand how two things can be true at the same time. Someone might never experience what they're experiencing, and then another person may experience it every single workplace. You use the term racial trauma in the title. I know racial trauma can result because you've experienced macroaggressions or microaggressions. Is there a broader definition that you use? And can you give me some examples of what those look like or feel like when they happen at work? Absolutely. I think that I would ask each of your listeners to think about a time when they went to the doctor, right? And the doctor would say, where's your pain level? Is it a 10? Where is it excruciating? Or is it that one where you could still kind of, you know, make it through the day? It it bothers you, but it doesn't take you off your game, right? And so with women of color, often we're experiencing these micro or macro aggressions. So if you're experiencing a three for a long period of time, it eventually starts to feel like a 10. And I think it's really important for us to understand that rather it's a 10 or a three, it's all painful. For example, I think I may have mentioned this before, but I had a manager who saw that I had burnt orange fingernail polish on and he made the comment that you people love your bright colors. And he joked for 15 minutes about how black people like bright colors. When I was in that situation, Jean, I felt so low, right? I felt, how could someone say this to me? And he would go on to say certain things like that each and every day. And I started to normalize his behavior. I started to tell myself that this is just how it is for a Black woman at work. So just make it through the workday, right? Just do your best. But what I realized was all of those slights started to impact how I showed up in the workplace. And I was not able to bring my authentic self. And so racial trauma, sometimes we've normalized it, right? Because we've said, well, that's not what Jim meant. You took it the wrong way. Well, again, two things can be true at the same time. Maybe Jim didn't intend any harm, but the impact was still harmful. And so I think sometimes we don't realize that the impact of these slights really do affect women of color and women in general. 
Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking, I mean, I'm not a woman of color, but I can totally relate to having a conversation where I was made to feel less than, right? Or made to feel different or that I didn't belong in some way just because I was a woman. And yet we know recent studies have taught us women and people of color are at greater risk for depression and anxiety right now than the rest of the population. I have to imagine that in part it's because all of these instances have just piled up over the years that you experience enough of them and they take a great toll. Absolutely. I recall one story that I tell personal story in the book where I left a very toxic work environment and I went to another environment It wasn't as bad as the one I left, but it still was horrible, right? And so after 14 years in my career at that time, I had a manager who was just being really racially aggressive to me. And I ended up crying in his office one day, not necessarily because of what he said and did that day, but because of what all the other workplaces did and didn't say, right? And it caught up to me, to your point, that, and I didn't realize that all of that trauma. I I couldn't recognize it because I didn't have the words to articulate it back then, but it caught up to me, right? And I realized, oh, I can't continue on in this current state. Something has to change. Yeah, I know what that feels like. My husband and I have a joke that I have a meltdown once a quarter, right? (laughs) And it's because usually I keep myself together and I keep it all in. And then once a quarter, it's up to my eyeballs and I can't do it anymore. And I have some sort of a meltdown. And then eventually, fortunately, it's over. But this is a much more societally problematic experience for women of color. We know that women of color lost jobs in greater numbers during the pandemic than white women. You mentioned that a lot of them took a step back, started a business of their own. How do we process that in our workplaces and how do we get to a better place as we're trying to build diverse workplaces? Yeah, you know, I think... We're at a unique time, Jean, where I think that we have some really great opportunities to make the workplace and heal the workplace and make it better than we found it, right? The workplace doesn't work equally for everyone. And I think if we are honest with ourselves, we can all say that, right? Even as women, some women experience more privilege than other women, right? And so I think it's really important that it's not a bad thing that we talk about these things out loud. And so what I hope we do, and I'm thankful that you lean into this, is lean into those conversations that may not be a lived perspective or lived experience of our own, but how can we show up for others so that we're aware that these things are happening? Up until two years ago, we weren't really talking about race and gender in the ways in which we're talking about it now. I mean, to your point, we're talking about women asking for what they want and saying, hey, this is what we want and this is what we need. And if you're not going to give it to us, then we'll find it in another industry or another employer or we'll build it ourselves. And I love this idea of self-advocacy, saying what we need and talking about them, right? It doesn't mean that I think at the end of the day, most people want a better workplace. They want equity to be at the table, right? I think we want that. But sometimes we don't know how to get there. And I think part of it is acknowledging that these inequalities do exist. And in order for us to solve for them, we have to acknowledge them. And I think that there's been some weird like position. Well, if I say that racism is here, then that means we're all racist. No, that's not what it means. It means that we get an opportunity to fix it and weed out bad behaviors. Do you think we've moved the needle 
at all with these conversations? I mean, the Black Lives Matter protests were in 2020. We definitely have this increased awareness. We are having more conversations. Are we creating change? You know, I'm an optimist, Jean, so I think that there was a time, and you and I both know, where we weren't talking about this. So now we're finally at a conversational point, but now we need to move into the demonstration. Now we're having the conversation, but what does it look like to act upon it? How do we demonstrate safety in the workplace? A a lot of people talk about psychological safety, but psychological safety at work doesn't happen because we stand in the mirror and say it three times fast, right? It requires each of us to do something different to create that safety. And I think that having an awareness then hopefully moves people to action. You mentioned a few minutes ago those experiences that in the past would be brushed off as it's not so bad or they didn't mean it that way. In the book, you lay out this five-step process to just get real when these things happen about what exactly they are and then move through them. How do you do that? Can you give us a piece of it? Yeah, absolutely. I think to your point, Jean, oftentimes, even just as women, we might experience sexism or we might experience some type of ism in the workplace. And normally we're met with, no, that's not, you took it the wrong way. (laughs) That's not what Tom meant. And it's like, okay, well, why are we showing so much empathy for Tom and not for me, right? (laughs) The one who's been harmed by the words. And I think a lot of times as women, we're looking for someone to affirm that this experience happened, right? And oftentimes because we're not, then we start to question ourselves. Well, maybe it wasn't that. Maybe I did take it the wrong way. But at the end of the day, we all know when we're being disrespected. We all know when there's no humanity there. And I think the first step in this is acknowledging. We can acknowledge and affirm ourselves. We know when something isn't right. We know what good looks like to us. And if it's not good, then we should be able to say and call a thing a thing, right? If it's sexism, if it's racism, we should be able to say, this has been my experience, right? And I think that first step in healing is acknowledging that these harms are taking place. The next part of that is making a decision. Sometimes we feel as women, we don't have any choices, any options. But what we've seen over the last 18 months is that we do have some decision-making power, right? And so we get to decide what we do next. Do we wanna address it? Do we wanna leave? Do we wanna stay? We have options. The other part is that accountability. We can hold people accountable. I think that what the last year and a half has done for us is to say, hey, We can create boundaries. We can speak our truths because when we speak our truths, maybe someone else will feel comfortable to do it too. And lastly, drawing our line, understanding that someone may not agree with what we've just said, but that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not necessarily looking for someone to agree with me. I'm just letting you know where my boundaries are and then moving on. Is there a way to say it? Have you found the words? You know, we have this conversation about money all the time. How do I tee up a conversation about money, which is not a conversation that I'm comfortable teeing up? We get a lot of those questions, right? How do I tee up a conversation about a microaggression or a macroaggression when it's not a conversation that I've ever had before? What words do you like? Yes. So I like to humanize the experience and I like to root them in fact. So for example, let's say that uh, I talk about in the book that I realized that I was having a lot of panic attacks inside of team meetings. At first, I didn't understand why I was always so anxious going into team meetings and why I'd 
have this depression around it. And then I realized that the most harm that was being caused to me was inside of team meetings. That's when people would say certain things or dismiss my ideas. And then I realized that, okay, I need to have a conversation about this because how can people help me or support me or weed out bad behavior if I don't articulate that, right? So I then had to go to my manager and say, last week at our weekly meeting, I noticed that Jenny is always saying this to me in a meeting and no one ever says anything about it, but this is how it's making me feel. And I've actually noted that in the last five meetings, she's actually called me by the wrong name. And I've been working on this team for five years. I said, I'm not understanding why that's happening. And I keep telling her that, you know, can you support me in this way? And my manager at one point in time would say, well, I don't think she means any harm. I said, well, I don't think she does mean harm, but it would be nice to be called by my name. <laughs> like that's important to me. Yeah. Right. And part of that, he said, okay, well, thank you for telling me. I didn't realize that was bothering you. Right. Even though he acknowledged it was taking place. And I think part of it, Gene, is giving ourselves the agency, the space to let people know what good looks like to us. Right. I couldn't dictate what he might say or any of those things, but I could control how I handle it and how I let people know about it. And I think that's part of it, right? Even going right now, I'm writing a young adult book and I'm talking about how do you bring as a young woman of color, how do you bring these conversations to like a teacher or a parent when you've experienced this? And I often say is you can enter into the conversation and say, hey, I have an experience that I'm battling with and I need you to just hear me out. Can I tell you about this? Right. And we humanize it. And we ask people to be a courageous listener as I tell you about my experience, right? And I think as women, sometimes we have to be so strong in every situation and it doesn't leave us any room for vulnerability. And I think that it's okay to be vulnerable. I totally agree. And somebody said to me the other day, and I just made a note of it because it really registered with me, feelings don't lie. You are feeling the way that you're feeling and nobody should be able to tell you not to feel that way, right? It's in you. And so the way that you're describing handling it, you're controlling what you can control, which is your expression of what happened to you, your expression of how you experienced it. So I I think that's a great way to go about it. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobier. I'm the co-host of MindShift, 
the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking with Minda Hartz, founder and CEO of The Memo and author of Right Within. Now, that title, Right Within, that's a nod to Lauren Hill. Is that right? That is. How are you going to win if you ain't right within? <laughs> awesome. Awesome. We have not heard enough from her lately. Let's talk about the word resilience, because there have been some really interesting discussions around it lately, particularly on social media. And the discussions have been sort of in and around the fact that we often praise women for being resilient. But in reality, we should be looking to dismantle the systems that have forced them to be resilient in the first place. What are your thoughts here? Gene, if I had like a tambourine or something handy, I would shake it right now because I agree with you so much <laughs> of what you said, because I think this idea of that we have to be strong for everybody else but ourselves, right, which leaves us no room to say, actually, I need support in this way, or actually, no, I have some other ideas about this. And I think that we have to normalize that women, women of color, we sit at different intersections. Some days we are resilient but we shouldn't have to be that 24 seven, seven days a week, right? And I think part of that definitely hurts us in the workplace because then people, again, see us as like this superhuman person that could take anything, right? That never let them see you sweat, but sometimes they have to see us sweat to know that we have feelings too, right? That these things bother us just as it would any other human being. One thing when I talked about crying in my manager's office, initially I was like so mad at myself that I did it, right? Because we're like, mm, I can't let them see me cry. I can't let them know that this is like affecting me in this way. And it was the first time, Gene, that I actually saw him be empathetic, that he looked at me in a different way, right? That not this strong woman that just, you know, gets everything done, but he actually saw me as a real person in that moment. Now, he didn't apologize for what he had said and done, but he saw me, right? And I think sometimes... At that point, I was like, you know what? I don't have to be upset with myself. I'm human. And these things would break any human being down, right? And I, so I think we just have to give ourselves that space and grace to be who we need to be in the workplace and not beat ourselves up in a sense when we aren't resilient because it's okay. And I think you gave him a chance to be more human too. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering, maybe he wasn't able to do that in the moment, Right. Yeah. Because I think that's a hard amount of guard to let down, particularly for a guy in a power position who's not used to showing his emotions at work. Was he more human with you in the weeks and months to come? He was better. He was better. I will definitely say he thought about for at least a good month or two how he spoke to me, how he engaged. Right. I think we had to have that breakdown in a sense for us to see each other in a different way. I'm not embarrassed by that moment. It was actually a redefining moment for me to say that I don't have to carry everything by myself. If you are a woman of color and you're looking to heal, what are the steps that you can take today to get to a better place? The first step is acknowledging that you've been harmed, 
right? And you should have never been exposed to that in the first place. I think it goes back to us not wanting to say certain things out loud because we have to be resilient, because we have to be strong, but knowing that you deserve humanity, grace, and dignity, right? So acknowledge that these things are happening. And I think next thing is documenting it. I think oftentimes, because some people don't have the same lived experiences as us, they need that documentation. They need to know that it's not just the feeling that we felt we were microaggressed. No, this actually happened in several emails. And it's always happening with these particular colleagues, right? Because typically the behaviors tend to come, we know who they are, right? And I think documenting that. And then the last thing I would say, Gene, to anyone is let's redistribute that energy because I know, and, and maybe you've experienced this too, when we've had a toxic situation or encounter, we then play it on a loop in our heads, right? We, we ruminate on it all day long. We take it home with us. We can't sleep at night because we keep thinking about it. And that's not good for our mental health and it's not good for our overall health. And so letting that go, right? Not letting that toxicity just live in our minds because it's not aiding in our healing process. Yeah, I think that's important. I'm thinking about, I mean, there's so many people who have left their jobs, so many women who have left their jobs during this period of time, but also during other periods of time when the situation got toxic. And when women can't leave their jobs or don't feel like they can leave their jobs, it's often for financial reasons. I've always been a don't quit your day job kind of person until you have another one. And I think that for me, that comes from fear that it's going to take a long time to find that next foothold where the paycheck will start to come in again. If you are stuck there for financial reasons, if you're stuck with this toxic manager or this toxic situation, are there things that you can tell yourself to make yourself just feel better about the fact that you have to slog it out? Yeah. I mean, you hit on a really important point, Jean. A lot of people don't have the luxury to just leave, right? You can't just <laughs> say, I'm out of here because for whatever reasons, all right? And I think that this is a good thing to talk about because sometimes we're not in a position to leave, but it doesn't mean that we can't heal. It doesn't mean that we can't find some type of pockets of joy in our situation. And when I was in that situation, I I cried and I wasn't able to leave until a year later. I still had to work in that environment, right? And so I started to reframe the conversation in my head. I said, how can I make this work for me? That I'm no longer making this work for everybody else. But, and that meant, what can I do to prepare for my next best thing, right? Is there a professional development stipend I can tap into? Can I get certain certifications? Is this an opportunity for me to ask for stretch assignments so that the role that I really want somewhere else, I'll be positioned for it when I leave here. And so I started to just do everything that benefited and padded my resume. And I'm like, you know what, this is fine because it's benefiting me. That change in redistributing the energy allowed me to be able to do some things that I might not have done when I did leave, right? Because I said, mm, I'm still an asset. I'm still worth it. And I'm going to continue to invest in myself. And I'm going to leverage the tools that I have here at this current job to get my next best thing. And I, so I would encourage all of you to do that. What can you do? How do, can you make this work? And then if you just need a little laugh and you need some extra assistance, write an exit email that you just save until the day that you can press send. <laughs> 
you know, find those things that you can do. <laughs> oh, make sure you put it somewhere safe so that you don't press send by mistake. Because, uh, God, I've got to tell you, if it was me, I would make a terrible technical error and I would send it when I didn't mean to. Yeah, put it in your personal email, you know, in your Google Docs. Just, you know, get that off your chest. <laughs> exactly. How can those of us who want to help be better allies, be better advocates for colleagues who are experiencing racism at work? What can white women do to help heal our black colleagues? Yes, I love this so much because success is not a solo sport. Like in order to heal the workplace, we all have to do our part and we all have the capacity to make things better than we found it. And I think part of this is no longer being a bystander. We all know those moments that we've been in those meetings where the thing was said or done and we're like cringing on the inside, right? <laughs> but we move on and pretend that it didn't happen. And so what would it be if you don't pretend that it didn't happen? Put yourself in the shoes of that person that's on the harm, right? That's experienced it. And I think the other thing too is that ethics. Sometimes we don't do anything or say anything because we have personal relationships with people or our kids hang out with this person. And we're like, no, they're not a bad person. But in this context, they are harming people. So for the good of the organization, how can we use our privilege to make sure that the harm is not happening anymore? So let's move from just being a bystander to an upstander. Doesn't mean you have to save the day, but you have to do something, right? And we all know, again, who those characters are who are always saying the thing that they shouldn't be saying or CCing somebody that shouldn't have been CC'd. We can show up for people. And the last thing I'd say, humanize it. How would you like someone to show up for you? If you were in that situation, would you want someone to pretend that it didn't happen? If that was someone you loved, would you want them to be constantly aggressed at work every single day? I'm certain that you wouldn't. So what would you want to do and then do it? You know, Again, you don't have to save the day, but you have to do something. So think about what that small act of courage is going to be the next time that you know it's going to probably happen because there's always a next time. I love that you are planning for the next time, right? It's when this happens, this is what I will do. This is what I will say. Just having that in the back of your mind or in your back pocket gives you a game plan. It gives you a road to follow. And that's really, really helpful. Minda Hartz, the book is right within. Thank you so much for being with us again. Thank you so much, Jean. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. And her money's Catherine Tuggle is with me now. I just love her. I am such a Minda fangirl. She followed me on Twitter, and I was like, I'm going to make this my Twitter bio. I'm literally going to be like, Catherine Tuggle, Minda Hearts follows me. That's all you need to know <laughs> about me. Yeah. Yeah. She's so smart and so insightful and just so real about her personal experiences and all of this stuff. And I like that she's granular about it right? I don't love it when people just say you should do X when they don't tell you how to do X, right? And X is not easy. X is not, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. X has multiple steps and nuances and emotions and possible outcomes. And she's just thought it all through, which makes, you know, these difficult conversations easier to plan for and tee up. Absolutely. The more we can talk about these things, the better off we will all be. And I'm so excited for Minda's insight to be going out in our book in May. Yeah, me too. Minda is one of 
a dozen remarkable women that allowed us to profile them for the book, answered some really interesting questions about their money journeys and their careers, gave us bits and pieces of their wisdom that they wished they had known when they were younger women. Just a wonderful addition to the book. So very, very excited. Thank you for that, Catherine, because you lined her up. Of course. I know we've got some questions in our mailbag. You want to turn to those? We do. Our first question today comes from Jennifer from New York. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. I'm a longtime listener of the podcast, and it goes without saying, but I love you both and this wonderful platform you have created. The recent bonus mailbag on financial planning with Pam Kruger was super helpful, but it left me with one big question. How do I assess whether a fee based on the percentage of my assets or an hourly rate is a better structure when I'm looking for a CFP? I'm inherently drawn more towards the hourly rate. A percentage just seems like a lot, but maybe those hourly rates add up quickly. I'm just not really sure how to assess what will be a more financially beneficial option for me. As a bit more background, we currently need help understanding our retirement outlook as it includes 401ks, IRAs, and a pension. We also want guidance on how to fund some big home renovation projects in the next five years or so. Your thoughts would be greatly appreciated. Also, super pumped for your new book to come out. Thank you, Jennifer. Catherine and I are equally super pumped for the new book, How to Money, to come out. Yay. And thanks for all the really nice words. You know, I've thought a lot about this because there is not one perfect fee mechanism for any person. And I think that you have to look at two different things. You have to ask yourself, are you more of a DIYer or a do-it-for-me kind of person. When financial advisors are paid by a fee, often they give you the plan and then you execute the plan. You go ahead and you buy the investments. Now, you could hire them at an additional hourly rate in some cases to execute you could hire them to do that. But I think if you lean toward being a DIYer with a side helping of advice, then paying by the hour is generally going to be more beneficial. If you want somebody to do it for you, then generally assets under management is going to be beneficial. However, I would find an advisor that you like who is perhaps willing to charge in both ways. And I'd ask them to, or two advisors that you like who have different fee models, and ask them to give you a ballpark estimate of what it's going to cost for a year of their services, and then just compare actual dollars rather than trying to compare apples and oranges. In the case of somebody with an hourly rate, I'd probably adjust it up based on their estimate by 10 to 20% just to be safe. Percentage of assets under management is just easier because it's, it's basically a flat fee. The goal is for them to grow your assets, and in that case, you'll pay them a little bit more money, but the thinking is you won't really mind paying them more money because your assets are growing. As far as the 
guidance on how to fund those big home renovation projects. Some holistic financial advisors will delve into territory like this, and other advisors who are more focused on just your investments may not want to go there. Personally, I think you are better off with a holistic advisor who will look at all of the different aspects of your life and help you connect all of those different pieces. I know that if you went through the process of filling out our WealthRamp questionnaire, which you'll find on the Her Money website, hermoney.com, you just click on the button that says find an advisor, they will be able to serve up for you advisors who get paid in both ways. So you'll be able to interview both types and maybe that will provide a clearer path to which one works better for you. I hope that helps. Great advice, Jean. And maybe it comes down to who you click best with, you know, interview a few financial advisors, see who you like, and then go from there. Yeah, I think so. The clicking is always a hugely important part of the process. But I get also wanting to make sure that you're paying a fair price for what you're getting and that you're not paying significantly more because you opted for one type of advisory fee structure versus another. If you can get it down to dollars in both cases so that you know that if you've got $500,000 and you're paying 1%, that is $5,000 a year. And if you look at an hourly rate of $300 and you think you'll use 10 hours, that's $3,000 a year. So in that case, you're spending $2,000 more by going with the assets under management than you would by the hourly rate. But you may have to do a little bit more of the actual work of investing the money yourself, depending on the particular services that the advisor who works by the hour offers. That's a great point. Thanks, Jean. Sure. Our next question comes to us from Roxanne. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. After years working in low-paying jobs, I'm now divorced from a high-earning spouse. I find myself, age 69, with 187,000 in a fidelity managed rollover IRA, 144,000 in an annuity set to provide $400 a month at age 75, and $5,000 in a savings account. I'm collecting $2,750 a month in social security. I live with a friend and currently pay 200 a month in expenses. I'd like to purchase a small home that I can afford for no more than around 170000 by using funds from my IRA. My plan would be to make my monthly mortgage payments from my Social Security. What are your thoughts on this move? Thank you. Thank you so much for writing, Roxanne. I'm glad that you are moving forward and, and thinking about this next phase of your life. I think it really all shakes down to the numbers. I totally get where you're coming from in wanting to own a place of your own. I completely understand both the emotional impulse to do that and the feeling of security that it would provide for you at this point in your life. However, you're looking at spending a significantly bigger chunk of money 
than you are currently spending. And I just want you to make sure that it's sustainable over the long term. It's unclear to me how much you would have to draw from that IRA in order to make this work. So let's just do a little bit of math to see how this would affect your financial life. Let's say your credit is excellent. I'm just going to assume you've got really good credit and you can get a mortgage where you put only 10% down. That means you'd have to put down $17,000-ish in order to get into this home, and you'd have a monthly payment of a little bit more than $800 a month. That includes taxes, it includes insurance. It's just a rough guesstimate of what it will cost you based on today's interest rates. So the question is, once you take the monthly income that you have, which is $2,750 from Social Security plus another $400 a month from your annuity, and you subtract the $800, that leaves you with around $2,400 a month, a little bit less than that. Is that enough for you to live on? Is that enough for you to pay for your health care? Is it enough for you to pay for your groceries? Is it enough for you to do the other things that you want to do? And if you are listening to this math example and it's not enough, what would the cost of renting your own home be? Would it be less than that? what would the cost be of some other living arrangement other than living with a friend as you're doing right now? Or does continuing to live with a friend in this way make more sense? I wish I could answer that question for you. I wish I knew what your monthly bills looked like. But I can tell you that it is possible to get a mortgage based on an income that comes primarily from Social Security. People do it. People do it all the time. Social Security income is just like other income. And you just have to look really closely at the numbers and make sure that you're feeling like you're not overbuying in order to get yourself into this lifestyle that you want. My guess is that you probably can do it, but I'd love to know what you decide. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, that's such a great point about living on Social Security. Where I'm from in Alabama, people do it every day because the cost of living is so low. So, so much of this has to do with your goals for retirement and where you live. Absolutely. And, you know, you didn't mention, Roxanne, if you're continuing to work. I know, you know, you're 69 years old and... In my book, that is not old. In my book, you've got a lot of life left. And if you decide that you'd like to pick up some part-time work in order to supplement what you're trying to do here, that might be a nice way to attack this as well. You wouldn't have to do it forever, but maybe you do it for a few additional years. Yeah, great point. Thank you, Jean. Sure, absolutely. And in today's Thrive, if you're recently divorced or are considering a divorce, we've got a look 
at what you should do if you weren't the one managing the finances. When a divorce is on the horizon for ourselves or a friend or a family member, our minds tend to go straight to the emotional implications. We want to offer support and a shoulder to cry on, cups of coffee, and vent sessions. We don't always immediately think about the money, but it is a huge concern for everyone, including me, who has ever been divorced. And for women who haven't had a hand in handling finances in the marriage, there's the added risk of being left in the dark about their current and future financial health. At HerMoney.com this week, we break down a step-by-step guide for what to do if you're divorcing and need to get a better handle on your financial picture. For starters, do some digging and do not be afraid to ask for help. If you haven't been the one in charge of finances, then there will be costs, assets, and accounts that you may not yet understand how to decipher and how to navigate. So you're going to need to do some homework. Her Money is always here for you, as are countless books by guests you've heard on our show before. And of course, working with an attorney and a financial advisor, that can help too. An expert can show you what you don't know and give you a practical understanding of your assets and the actions you need to take next. The key is finding an advisor you trust, someone who's happy to answer your questions, willing to educate you on your own financial health, and ready to build a long-term relationship. Next, ask questions about what you have. A big part of managing finances after divorce is simply figuring out what you've got and where it's located. You'll need to inventory your assets, so start by obtaining access to all online accounts that involve you, and then keep a log of questions that arise as you do your research. How much does it cost to maintain your home? What about extra costs such as pet care and insurance? When you arm yourself with information, staying financially healthy after a divorce won't seem so overwhelming. Finally, make a plan to set and reach future financial goals. What would you like to achieve financially in the next five years? How much will you need for retirement or to help pay for a child's education? Call on a financial advisor to help you craft a comprehensive plan. Find one if you don't. You can use our wealth ramp tool for that at hermoney.com and then run the data to figure out if you're on track. Then lay the groundwork to make your money flourish and meet all of those goals. Taking the first step, that's the hardest part. Now's the time to start dreaming of and planning for the future. You got this. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Minda Hartz for being here with us again to share her wisdom and insight on Black women in the workplace in 2022 and the path to healing from racial trauma. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.